Hello, and welcome to Visually Sacred. My name is Arthur Agajanian, and I'm a Christian contemplative and essayist. In this podcast, I speak with thought leaders working in the intersection of art, visual culture, and religion. Thank you for joining me as we explore the rich and complex role of images in Christian history, culture, belief, and practice. In this episode of Visually Sacred, my guest is Ali Hussein. Ali Hussein is a musician and poet. He has a PhD in Islamic Studies from the University of Michigan, Department of Middle East Studies. His research focuses on the image of Jesus in the writings of Muslim polymath Muhyiddin ibn al-Arabi and later Muslim scholars. His other research interests include Islam and Sufism in America, art and creativity in Islam, and the creative engagement that Sufi mystics have with Arabic through the mediation of the Quran. In 2018, he founded the Adwaq Center for Spirituality, Culture, and the Arts, a nonprofit organization focused on spirituality and creativity in contemporary culture. Ali has published a number of books and articles, including The Art of Ibn Arabi and The Metaphysics of Creativity from the Quran into Ibn al-Arabi and Ibn al-Arabi and Joseph Campbell, The Metaphysics of Creativity and Mythology of Contemporary Art. And most recently, A Nostalgic Remembrance, Sufism and the Breath of Creativity. 40 Conversations with a Prophet about Art and the Creative Process and Art and Memoirs, The Wayward Journey. In this episode, Ali and I explore the intersection of Christian mysticism and Sufism in the realm of art and spirituality. As representatives of Christianity and Islam, we share a love of the mystical schools in each tradition, and we had an amazing interfaith dialogue. We discussed everything from the mystical nature of the creative process to the influence of the great Sufi mystic Ibn Arabi, the search for the sacred in everyday life, and the role of representation in visual art and popular media. I hope that in listening to our conversation, you will gain a deeper understanding of the spiritual dimensions of art, the important commonalities between our two religious traditions, and the unique challenges faced by both Christian and Muslim artists in their efforts to infuse spirituality into contemporary art. As you listen, you may discover that a comparative approach to the mystical aspects of creativity opens new ways of looking at the world we share and how much our lives are interwoven across cultures and religions. Ali, welcome to Visually Sacred. I'm eagerly anticipating our interfaith dialogue where we can explore the intersections of faith, aesthetics, and the human experience together, but also the deep mystical roots shared by both of our religious traditions, Christianity and Islam. Thank you very much, Arthur. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. I'd like to start our conversation with an inquiry into the relationship between creativity and spirituality. I think of the aesthetic as a portal of sorts that provides access to the spiritual. Art invites us to consider fundamental aspects of the human experience, whether it inspires us to reflect on life's mysteries or draws us into awe and wonder or motivates us to explore existential questions, it's a form of transport. I think it's important to remember, though, that we don't want to get stuck on the object. What's most important is where it sends us. But we can also talk about the relationship between art and spirituality as a reciprocal relationship. 
To set the stage for our discussion on the mystical dimensions of art, can you explain the creative aspect of the mystical experience and the mystical aspect of the creative process? I'm, I'm really eager to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, thank you very much for that wonderful question. In, in my recent book, Nostalgic Remembrance, Sufism and the Breath of Creativity, I talk about, I, I build on the premise that the mystical experience and the creative process are mirrored movements with two definitions that one really fitting the creative process, which is to make connections where none seem possible or exist. But in turn, that's actually also what the mystical experience is about. Um, and then the other definition, which is closer to being the definition of the mystical experience, but also applies to the creative process, is translating the ineffable into the tangible. And it's really about uh, a, a subject that I think we will get to later, this idea of the sacred and the mundane, of, of bridging two worlds that seem disparate. And, and, and for me, the creative process itself, you know, as, as Sufis often talk about, it's the journey that that is often much more important than the destination of wherever it is you're supposed to get. Um, and, and, and so it is that the creative process is actually where uh, much of the mystical power of art, I believe, resides. Uh, in a book called Art and Fear, the authors say that the audience of an artist who happen to be artists are much more interested in the creative process more than the work itself. Because yeah, they know definitely. that that's that's the that's the well from which the the work emanates. So for me, that's that's really the sort of the camaraderie or the mirroring even between the mystical experience and the creative process. It's like saying that the creative process itself is a journey, right? Yes, absolutely. And and it's a it's a it's a journey. It, it's it's also which is itself a very mystical introspective reality of witnessing yourself the artist the artist witnessing themselves mirrored in the world because ultimately you know this is the thing about uh, especially the visual art of 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 witnessing parts of ourselves that that we didn't know otherwise just mm -hmm. as a writer would externalize their own demons and heroes in a story in a novel a painter witnesses it in colors, uh, a clash of colors on a canvas, or much more so characters fighting on film. And I, I'm here reminded of Steven Spielberg, of course, who, who spoke about that he had deep-seated fears of what lives under the water, so he made the movie Jaws, and he has fascinations with outer space, so he made, you know, E.T. and extraterrestrial encounters of the third kind, and then also some elements of space and, and Indiana Jones. And so this is, this is really about knowing oneself, which is, of course, goes back to the Greeks, know thyself. In, in Sufism, whoever knows himself knows his Lord. So it's this, it's this idea of externalizing the within using the tools of the external world, world. And I think that that's what the artist is all about. Yeah, I think about the transcendence of ego too in the creative process. Mm -hmm. uh, mystical experiences, you know, they often involve a temporary dissolution of the ego or yes. the self, the small self. And in the creative process, this can be freeing. Artists can transcend their personal limitations and tap into a deeper well of creativity. And art created from this place can feel universal and timeless. Mm hmm. 
And I think, I think, you know, this, this, this goes into this idea of gratitude and this idea of letting go of, of, I mean, art is one of the best sort of crafts to and experiences to teach humanity about this, this, you know, this thing of that we have no power. We, we are really channels. Um, yeah. And I'm reminded of, of Sir Michael Caine when he was talking about Jack Lemon, the first time he acted in, in front of the camera after a long career in acting and theater where you have to project. And uh, the director kept asking uh, Jack in front of the camera because the camera can pick up every little nuance. So he kept asking him, do less, Jack, do less, do less. Until Jack mm. Lemon said, if I do any less, I'll do nothing. And he said, that's precisely it. And then, you know, I when I heard that, I was immediately reminded of the verse in the Quran, you have no hand in the affair. It, it's, it's, it's just, or, you know, the, 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 the verse in the Bible, be still and know that I am God. So it's, it's this yeah. idea of like the neigh, the reed flute, you, it, when you're completely emptied from the inside, that's when the divine breath can sort of, can sort of, you know, can be, and, you know, a musical instrument is very selfless because even though it's the one that's burnt and bent and, and, and goes through that arduous journey of self, of, of discipline, it's actually the musician who is praised and clapped for after they, they produce music. And I think that the artist in many ways the craft of the art, the, the very instruments of even the visual arts, the camera, for example, it's the one that captures this entire story and narrative. And yet it's never thanked. It's, it's the director who's thanked. It's the actors. The, so in, in, in a way, I feel that the instrument of, of a craft is actually teaching the artist of how to be like it, an instrument in the divine hand. To, to simply be a channel to allow this divine breath to, to, to go through. You're making me think of primary instruments and then secondary instruments. Mm. You know, what would be the primary instrument of this creative act and what would be the secondary? Because I hadn't thought about so much about the, the tool of the art making as, yes. or the medium of the art making as a channel itself. Yeah, I it's mean, it's an extension, think... though, right? I mean, it's it's the, for someone like John Coltrane, the saxophone mm -hmm. is an extension of his very self. Yes, I think. and I think, I mean, in many ways, the the way I look at as an oud musician myself, the way I look at at a at a musical instrument, I see it as a sage. I mean, especially for the Ney, you know, Rumi, the, the Sufi poet, he began his compendium of poetry, the Methnevi, by discussing the reed flute. That the reed flute goes through this journey of being separated from home and mm. goes through this arduous journey of being burnt and, 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 and straightened out and emptied from the inside. And then the seven holes in the reed which represent the seven chakras or in Sufism, the seven subtleties to allow communication with the unseen realm, to allow us to journey to God is, is, is it, it yields this, this sort of like a, like a, like a martyr almost that is producing beauty after having gone through 
this very harsh, arduous journey. And in many ways, depending on the on the perspective that we approach, the artist is the one who goes through this journey of learning how to produce sound. But then I feel like behind it, you know, there is a, there is a beautiful story of Sufism that, that Ibn Arabi mentions about uh, the journey of a, of a disciple of a really famous saint from Baghdad, one of the prominent Sufi saints, Abdul Qadir al-Jilani. This disciple journeyed until he entered the divine presence. And he says when he entered into the court of the king, he didn't find, and of course he's using metaphor here, he says he didn't find any sandals at the doorstep. And he was happy because he felt like he's the first person to get to this place. Like nobody has gotten there before him. But Ibn Arabi says he didn't know that his teacher, Abdul Qadir al-Jilani, put his sandals behind the door in order to make his student happy to make him think that he is the first person to get there, not knowing uh-huh. that his teacher had gotten there before him. Uh-huh. And I feel that that's, that's sort of what, 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 what the instrument does. I mean, especially if you look at, at, at art and the creative process as, as a mystical thing, as a spiritual, as a divine thing, then really it's like we feel we're in control. We feel like we're doing something. And if you keep doing it long enough, what rev- what begins revealing itself to you is that you're not a performer. You're you're part of the performance, right? You, you right? And 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 it's this it's this idea. Okay, if I do this, no, I have to let go. And you keep letting go. You keep letting go. You keep letting go. And the instrument is there, watching you wisely. And it's just it's just being, right? The instrument mm-hmm. is just being nothing. And in that, it's teaching, I think, I feel at the highest level, it's teaching the artist at the higher level how to also be nothing. Well, it, it makes sense to me to talk about the mystical dimensions of the creative process, but do you think it makes sense to flip it around and address mysticism as something that in itself uh, has creative attributes. How would you define, if if you can, how would you define those attributes? Absolutely, absolutely. And this is one of the you know one of the areas that I discuss with 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 Muslim artists specifically, is that you know there are there are key terms that every faith tradition has. And Shahab Ahmed, who wrote a book called "What Is Islam: The Importance of Being Islamic." He really did a groundbreaking thing of which I think helps helps us in all religious traditions, people of all religious traditions rethink what faith is in modernity by saying that Islam is not a system of rituals and beliefs. I mean, this idea of religion being a system of rituals and beliefs is very modern. It, it's not very traditional. Right. Uh, he says, but it, it's a process of making meaning. Islam is a process mm-hmm. of making meaning. Now, when I when I read that, I began thinking deeply about it because then when you look at a contested term, a controversial term in, in our modern times, like Sharia, for example, which is thought of as just being rules and rules and more rules, Sharia law. Yeah. What it yeah. really is, is rules of the craft. Because then you can think about a painter having rules of the craft, how to hold a brush, 
Uh, mm-hmm. The color wheel, color coordination. This is the sharia of painting. There is a sharia to filmmaking. There you is could also say, to... yeah, I, I, I think of the word discipline. Discipline, exactly. But then, and here is the part where art flips the script. When you look at something like Picasso's statement, for example, learn the rules like an amateur, then break them like a pro. Now, if we take that and we begin thinking creatively about the rules of any faith and how that helps us create art with our faith. Now, for me, this is where Ibn Arabi comes in because what I saw him as I was reading him is precisely this art of faith. He's an artist of faith. He's somebody who's able to make connections through scripture that other scholars, Muslim scholars, before and after him couldn't, and thus they found him to be a threat. For him, the spiritual world and the physical world were not distinct realms. They were on a continuum to the degree that to the degree that the, the, the spiritual world affects the rules that we have in the physical world. So, for example, um, he discusses the ruling in Sharia for why is it permissible to wear shoes during prayer. He doesn't, he doesn't give a physical ruling. He doesn't say, uh, well, it depends on what type of shoe it is or what type of leather it is because we have uh, precedence of the prophet doing this. He says, no, because prayer is a journey and you cannot travel barefoot. So now what he's doing, he's rooting a physical ruling in the spiritual realm. And I think that that is a creative act. You know, mm. that, is, that, is a, that is an attempt of thinking outside of the box. So the way you're describing it, then creativity is a form of, of rethinking, of reimagining what we've been given, what's been handed to us through tradition so that we can reinvent for ourselves, each of us individually, and continuously reinvent our understanding of the spiritual realm? Is that kind of what you're referring to? So there is a creative process to faith. And the creative process of faith is what keeps faith relevant and revenant. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there 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 is, it's usually thought that there is two elements to the survival of any tradition. A type of con- and they're actually contentious. They're, op- they're 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 perplexing opposites. One is constancy, some type of some type of anchor to the past, mm-hmm. but then a constant change. Mm-hmm. If one of those is missing, if there is only constancy without change, it will cease to be relevant. And if there is just change without any type of constancy, it's it's completely loses its its anchor to the past and something completely different. Becomes something relative, purely it's yeah. like pure relativism. And you know, one of the biggest challenges, again, going back to this idea of the sacred and the mundane, one of the biggest challenges I, I feel in amongst in the Muslim community, and I believe it's it's probably the same for other faith traditions as well, especially Christianity, is this idea of of coming to terms with modern art, um, and that's really that really requires creative muscles. Mm-hmm. of being able to, in the truest sense, reform one's faith. By reform, I mean dressing it in a new form. I mean, this is, this is really what I think the, the, the challenge is about, to liberate 
um, at least for the Muslim artists, to liberate the Quran. For me, that's my mission, to liberate the Quran from this strictly theological, from this strictly mm -hmm. juristic, and to look at Muslim artists as, hey, you are creative custodians of the faith. And there are meanings inherent in scripture, and I'm sure it's the same in Christianity as well. There are inherent meanings in the Bible that are only that will only be opened to the artists. That, mm -hmm. that a priest or a reverend or a, 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 a theologian, a Muslim theologian, cannot access. Because if you believe in divine grace, you should believe that nobody has a monopoly on it. Uh, that it's open to all humanity, that, that anybody who approaches uh, God's word can receive something that's unique to them. Yeah, well, we're also unique instruments, right? Each of us has exactly. sort of a part to play, and we all bring God into the world in our own way, based on the gifts that we've been given. The key is to recognize those gifts and then to understand their divine underpinning so that we can then open to the grace of God and allow these gifts to flow out into the world and, and manifest in ways that impact the created order. And and this is this is where the third sort of mirroring happens uh, between the artist as representative of the human being, the world as the canvas that reflects back to the artist, and then God. You know, mm -hmm. the, 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 philosophically, we're looking at microcosm, macrocosm, and then metacosm. Uh, mm -hmm. And 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 it, it, in Sufism, also there is you know these are represented by roughly by three scriptures, the what is called the ciphered book which is the human being based on our genome and our DNA and our spiritual DNA. We are like a ciphered scripture. And then the written scripture, which is the, the, the Bible or the Quran or the Torah. And then the, the witnessed scripture, which is nature and the universe. So there is, there, and even in the Quran, the word for verse, ayah, is, is actually a, a homonym and it means also a sign. So there is this, this, this correlation between every verse in the Quran and every sign of God in the universe. So that becomes also part of the creative journey of translation, right? Which is to witness every verse in the Quran, its counterpart within the human being, within ourselves, and then within the, within the universe. And I think that ultimately... That's really what the creative, pro that's what, really what art is. I mean, art is a translation, right? I mean, that, that's one of the ways translating the ineffable yeah. into the tangible, making connections mm -hmm. where none seem possible or exist. As somebody who writes in Arabic and English or thinks about the two languages, I oftentimes uh, perceive translation uh, uh, at the most rudimentary levels really as a creative art by itself. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I was going to ask you, actually, regarding your interest in Ibn Arabi, who is, for those who don't know, a renowned Islamic mystic, and he's had a profound impact on the understanding of mysticism among Muslims. I was going to ask you how his work has influenced your perspective, uh, although I think some of that has already come out mm -hmm. in, in what you've been talking about. But I also wanted to give you the opportunity to speak to any 
particular experiences in your education and learning and understanding of mysticism through Ibn Arabi? And also, do you see common threads between his ideas and Christian mysticism in relation to art and creativity? Where do you find sort of the commonality or the, could you maybe describe how you see the larger pool of mysticism and its, its sort of role as a, a source for art and creativity. Yes, absolutely. Thank you very much for that question. So, you know, I grew up in an artistic family, in a family of artists, and all of them actually visual artists. My mother is a painter and an interior decorator, and my sister is a, is a pottery maker. My brother is an architect. My father, although he's a scientist, he's a, he's a photographer, nature photographer. And, mm. you know, the earliest memories I have of my childhood in Iraq before the Gulf War and even in diaspora in Jordan was, it was one of art. It was one of, 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 of photography and galleries and all of that. And so, you know, the images of art from childhood are very nostalgic and very formative for me. And, and I, but I came to, I I came to discover my faith, uh, Islam, in America, you know, after coming to the United States in, in, in the, towards the turn of the century, around 1998. And so after having gone through these diasporas and coming across Ibn Arabi around 2012, when I, when I started doing my PhD in Islamic studies, he sort of represented... A, a coalescence, a, a coming together yeah. of of different strands of 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 different crises that I had been experiencing. One of which is, as I mentioned, my childhood. This art, which was, in many ways, what we would describe, you know, uh, late twentieth century secular modern art right in terms of uh, of of paintings this this my, my you know my my family didn't engage in in what we would call religious art you know it, it, it but but it also wasn't hedonistic right there there is a type of spirituality in again the sacred and the mundane which which we will get to um that's one strand that's that's part of my childhood that I try to come to terms with and then the other part was me discovering my faith and mingling with a Muslim community that unfortunately, and I, you know, I, I, I have no problem being honest about this, we have a tremendous crisis when it comes to um, appreciating the arts um, in the Muslim community in the West um, mm-hmm. uh, of, of regarding, you know, for example, musical instruments as being allowed or not allowed, permitted or not permitted. Um, of 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 what type of visual art can we engage with? Can painters, for example, paint portraits of of human beings, so on and so forth? And all of these issues have been holding back the Muslim artist from sort of exciting. So I had within me a crisis of this childhood, where there was a vibrant, creative life, unfettered by any religious concerns. But also, we didn't do it in spite of faith. You know, in Iraq and Egypt and Jordan, nobody did art and did musical instruments in spite of faith. The, 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 the contention wasn't there. There was never any conversation about 
you know, am I going to hell for, for playing music? Am I going to hell for painting portraits? It was always in the Middle East, the conversations on the very margins of extreme ideology to even entertain the idea that musical instruments or music itself is forbidden is considered very extreme. But here, there, it, it seems to have found a lucrative uh, uh, space, uh, a conversation. Mm. And then all of a sudden, Ibn Arabi came with this liberating, his particular ability to, again, translate and to speak from the highest summit of Islamic spirituality in a language that... You know, for example, uh, and I'm here translating literally what he said, reality is perplexity, perplexity is anxiety and movement, and movement is life. I could sit with an atheist painter and we can talk very harmoniously mm -hmm. about this idea of reality is perplexity, perplexity is anxiety, movement, and movement is life. In other words, he was the one who taught me that it's okay to liberate the the richness of what I felt is in the Quran to liberate it from a strictly theological, a catered conversation to a particular community of faith and instead to extend it to all of humanity. Now, I think for me specifically, because I also come from a, a background uh, of, of a relatively secular childhood in Iraq and mm -hmm. Egypt and Jordan, I've always felt that part of the challenge for Muslims in America is to, especially those who are interested and invested in the creative process, is to learn how to appreciate contemporary culture, pop culture, films and paintings. How do you witness God in contemporary architecture, which is a huge debate. You know, which is, it's, not, it's not this traditional, you know, architecture that is supposed to induce God in the person who witnesses it or who... who no, right. this is what has been called brutalist, the brutalist movement. Or, or But Ibn Arabi, for Ibn Arabi, undoubtedly God is there. He mm -hmm. has to be. Either you can't witness it and you humbly submit to that or you're able to decipher it. But but it's 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 this thing, and, and you know I wrote an article comparing uh, Ibn Arabi and Joseph Campbell um, mm. uh, on the Medifin, and, and what I realized that was really quite shocking is that Ibn Arabi is even more expansive and more optimistic than Joseph Campbell, because Joseph Campbell has this idea that there isn't a place in modernity that allows one to have this archetypal journey to the other realm even though he talks about entering a cathedral in downtown Manhattan and feeling like he entered a different dimension. For him, the modern architecture, the modern building doesn't allow that. But for Ibn Arabi, that's not true. Well, it's so interesting to me too, because as you're, as you're talking, I'm thinking about how with Ibn Arabi, you're looking at a 13th century mystic who's, who's as, as you're Describing his ideas, they they sound contemporary. You know, yes. one would think that you're talking about a a postmodernist. And that's you know, the thing. Sense. And 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 this is really this is really one of the remarkable sort of. I mean, he was he. You know, we talk about people belonging to a different time. 
you almost feel like he, you know, he, and, and this is, this is his time. I mean, th- there is, there is, a, for my experience of dealing even with non-Muslim artists, I find that non-Muslim artists, Christian artists have a much better grasp of what Ibn Arabi is talking about than Muslim scholars. Because, mm. because again, he's, he's talking about this, this, uh, 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 this importance. Uh, 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 one of his important ideas, for example, is the in-between, the liminality, the liminal space. Uh-huh. Which, when I did a search on uh, 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 modern art, I found thousands of, of of artists talking about this idea of being in between the liminal space at the right. threshold. Now, what he's doing, what he's doing, I think, is he's sacralizing the the plethora of contemporary crises. So when you have artists talking about things like imagination, memory, uh, identity, right? The blurred lines of boundaries, all of these ideas, Ibn Arabi had sacralized them. He had rooted them that, hey, this has a root in divinity, necessarily Mm -hmm. so. And for him, it was a matter of looking at the world as a matrix of signs. So nothing can escape being a sign of God. Well, it's about and, finding meaning, isn't it? I mean, if you yes. talk to a contemporary artist who has no sense of the spiritual and yet speaks comfortably about things like liminality and the ineffable, ineffable, the ineffable, or alludes to transcendence, there isn't anything that, as you referred to earlier, this notion of the anchor in tradition, right? There isn't a foundation that they can come back to as a reference point. It's kind of like, yes, this is what the creative process is like. And they'll start speaking in terms that are really spiritual, but it doesn't really go anywhere because there's nothing, there's no sort of ground for any of that. So you know, there's an acceptance of of these aspects of the creative process, which have a mystical character, but there's no way to make sense of it. What, whereas what religion holds for us is a system for understanding, a theology that helps make an experience, I think, more meaningful and also as something that sits deeper within our sense of who we are. But I also think this is where the role of the spiritual artist or the artist whose spirituality is rooted in faith, this is where their role comes in and for the sake of contemporary art. So they could of, mediate that space, you think? So exactly. So we're, in a sense, translators. But it's actually a bit more, it's, it's, I, I like to think of it with all the sense of selflessness that I could muster into it as channels of grace. And this is what I mean. I, I am a firm believer that it is enough for me to witness through the grace of someone like Ibn Arabi, how an atheist painter 
is actually rooted in God. They don't need to know it because mm -hmm. they, in my, in our purview, they're already under divine grace, even though they don't believe in God. They don't, they don't believe, like you said, they don't, they don't have that anchor, but we believe they're anchored because they cannot escape being anchored just as they probably believe we're insane. Right. But it's, and, and, and it's fine because what this is, what, you know, I remember one time when I was taking a graduate course on religion, I asked uh, my professor, I said, what ethical responsibility do I have to remaining true to the framework of contemporary literary theory and how I use it in my own work? He says, you have no responsibility. You can deconstruct deconstruction. I mean, this is really what it's about. It's about how you're able to use that work in your own under your own umbrella but but this is what this is what creativity is right i mean i oftentimes describe the creative process also as this idea of bricolage a term coined by the philosopher claude levi strauss who describes the bricolor as someone who works with a limited set of tools to create something new right, right. It, it's it's the utmost sense of creativity to perceive someone like, for example, Virginia Woolf, who was a self-professed agnostic as being a, 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 a saint, someone who's talking about witnessing unity in, in a field, in, in a cotton field and, and witnessing this sort of oneness to actually connect her to someone like Ibn Arabi. And I actually wrote a blog about uh, connecting Virginia Woolf and, uh, and Ibn Arabi. So I think this is the creative prerogative of the either the artist or someone who is interested in, anchored in creativity within a spiritual tradition, that we are translators. Translators with the purpose of not transforming the artwork itself or transforming the creative process of the artist, because it's a fragile thing. They're predisposed um, to, to do the work that they have in the way that they're predisposed to do it. But it is our job, I think, to make that connection, to imagine that work of that atheist, secularist, whatever it is, within the context of scripture, of tradition, and to also imagine what kind of conversation might Ibn Arabi have with somebody like that? Um, how would he converse with somebody like that? Because what they're doing, actually, I feel, for me, um, is they're actually giving us a translation of the terms that I'm seeking to translate from Scripture. This is what it would look like in the context of contemporary art. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Many Christian mystics have written about the concept of finding the divine in the everyday, emphasizing the idea that God's presence can be experienced in ordinary life. Uh, Julian of Norwich writes in Revelations of Divine Love about the presence of God's love in all things. Brother Lawrence, who's known for his book, The Practice of the Presence of God, advocated for experiencing God's presence in the most mundane tasks. The medieval mystic Meister Eckhart spoke about finding God in the eternal now. Your work has explored the idea of finding the sacred in the mundane. 
Can you elaborate on this and how it relates to the artist's role in fulfilling the Christic archetype? You have some thought-provoking ideas about Christian theology I'd love for you to share with our listeners. How does this resonate with contemporary art and its potential for conveying spiritual depth as we've just been discussing? Yes, absolutely. Regarding the sacred within the mundane, it is not only about it, it's not it's not about taking the form of the mundane and changing it to something that's 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 scriptural, but mm. it's actually I mean, there in, in Islamic theology, there is two approaches to witnessing God. One is transcendence and the other is eminence. And transcendence is what we might call negative theology, uh, where mm -hmm. God is distant, unlike anything in the world. And eminence is where he is so intimately present in the world that, you know, as the biblical story, you know, he is... If you feed the sick, you have fed God. If you feed the poor, you have fed God. If you visit the sick, you have visited God. And this is also uh, in the Islamic tradition. But it's it's really specifically about uh, what's also Judaic concept of Kadusha, of that everything is either sacred or not sacred yet. Hmm. Uh, the Muhammadan light, which I like to think as the Sufi concept of Logos, to the degree that I have even proposed it as being, we should have a discipline called Muhammadology, exploring the primordial light of the Prophet Muhammad as being the first thing that God created and the thing, the the thing from which the fabric of existence from which God created everything in the universe. Nothing, and this is Ibn Arabi's vision. Nothing exists save that it has the trace of the prophetic light. To exist means that you have the prophetic light. Non-existence is the absence of logos, of, of the prophetic light. So in turn, nothing is entirely evil. The sacred in the mundane is to peel off the layers, the veils, and to witness what that thing is. But that's only the first step, where that trace of the sacred. The second step, which I think is much more tricky, is to see how it has, how God, that sacred communication between God and that particular form. Because the way a bird praises God is not the same way that a human being praises God. The way that a wall praises God is not the same way that a human being praises God or the way that a plant praises God. Now, within humanity, human beings, the trick for the religious person specifically is to witness God in the unfamiliar. And specifically, what we might even go to the most extreme opposite, polar opposite, the ungodly. Right? I mean, to think about the sacredness of, of Nietzsche saying God is dead or, 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 or Virginia Woolf saying there is no God, you would have to... I feel, ask the question, and this is a question I also uh, refer to with what we might call low art, is what is what might have been the initial cry from within the heart of the artist? And how was that initial cry mistranslated, perhaps, in an external work of art? The, take the lowest art that exists in the world and think about 
what was that initial spark of creativity that was so mistranslated such that it emerged in this hideous thing that that, that his hideous mm. work of art, whether it's a banana peel or, excuse my like, you know, a can of excrement at a museum. This is an entirely different question than saying this work is a t entirely satanic. For mm. Ibn Arabi, whose school I belong to, he doesn't believe that a human being, that creativity can be inspired by the devil. Because... Creativity, the act of creating, is exclusive to God. Mm -hmm. And actually, the Quran is very specific. God creates you and what you do. So it's so a human being who causes the distortion by not, one could say, living up to their full potential, which in itself is Precisely. a definition for, for sin. Precisely. And then the it becomes... Context. It, it because so Ibn Arabi says literally he says every human being with an imagination if they imagine their gaze extends into the divine imagination so that's mm. the initial spark of creativity now how that is translated into an external work of art that goes through many stages including social social trauma social conditioning mm -hmm. life past history that yields a work that could be much different than, than the initial uh, uh, creative inspiration. And by the way, this is how Sufi saints also talk about uh, the issue of interpreting dreams, for example. So they say that two people who have the same dream should not receive the same interpretation because it depends on their spiritual maturity. A person who is very spiritually mature, who is, for example, a saint, uh, who is very in tune with the spiritual world, their dream might not need any interpretation at all. What they saw is actually the reality of the fear. Whereas another person who is much less spiritually mature than the saint, even though they saw exactly the same thing, their dream is layered behind a series of interpretations that need to be interpreted. It's the same thing with sickness. So two people who have the same sickness should not receive the same medication in traditional medicine. Because what brings one body into equilibrium is not the same as brings another body into equilibrium. Ibn Arabi talks about this idea of untying the knots of theology because the word theology in Arabic, aqidah, is from the word uqda, which means not. So he says, when, we, when you adhere to a particular theology, a particular creed, you're tying a knot on God. And the journey is all about untying the knots. So when it comes to the sacred within the mundane, you're really trying to untie the knots that is separating the external work of art from that initial pure spark of creativity. I believe it's a theological problem for me if somebody says that God has cannot inspire uh, this person to do this work of art. As soon as you said God cannot, that's a theological problem. That's mm -hmm. a theological problem. Now, when you talk about creative inspiration, I'm actually going back to prehistoric times. Uh, you know, the cave paintings of Lascaux and Altamira. What what was that? Where did that initial inspiration come from to want to express experience? on on the surface of the caves 
that seems to me like a divine, that's like a divine spark. Absolutely. And that gets us into the whole nother subject of, of, of language as visual art. I mean, you know, we've been conditioned today as human beings to associate part, and this is a modern linguistics thing of associating particular meanings with words. So in modern linguistics, the word tree has no relationship with the reality of a tree. It's a completely coincidental. That's definitely not true mm -hmm. in Ibn Arabi's linguistics, where there is a whole other more primordial and visceral way of reading language, which is reading, listening to the sound, not the, 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 the grammar of what we associate with the meanings of words and reading the calligraphy as opposed mm -hmm. to reading an entire word and then saying, well, this is what grammar tells me this word means. And this is why for me, language is actually a visual art. I mean, if you go back to the ancient Egyptians, uh, there, the hier hieroglyphics is actually, is, 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 is a bunch of drawings. I mean, it's, it's visual art. Now to get to the question of, 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 of Christology, I think the most, and really specifically the Trinity one of the most remarkable things that Ibn Arabi uh, talks about is that the entire universe is built on a structure of triplicity. Hmm. That in, in the universe, there is always, in existence, there is always two things with a liminal barrier interstice in between. Always. You have absolute existence, who is God, absolute non-existence, and then the universe creation in between them as this imaginal meeting uh, liminal between the fresh water of the of being and the salty water of non-existence. This is the world we live in. And then in this world that we live in, between each of the realms of the spiritual realm and the physical realm, you have another in between called the realm, the dominion of imagination. And that exists in the human beings as well. So in the human being, we have the body, which represents the physical world, the spirit, the roof, which represents the spiritual world, and then the soul, the ego, which represents this. The, he calls it a child that's born in the marriage between the body and the spirit. Uh, and of course, here he is, he is paying an homage to, to uh, the Holy Spirit representing the, the, the spiritual realm and then Mary representing the physical realm and then Jesus representing the, 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 human, the human self. So there is mm -hmm. always this triplicity. There is always, and, and for him, any, any faith tradition, any philosophy that views reality either based on oneness or an oddity of numbers has a rooting in reality. And in one particular mm -hmm paragraph in his magnum opus, the Meccan openings, Ibn Arabi specifically exonerates Trinitarians. And he says, I witnessed in a vision, in a spiritual vision, says, I witnessed the people of the Trinity as people who believe in God because they made God an odd number. There is actually a, a narration in Islam where the prophet said, the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said, he said that God is singular and he loves odd numbers. And so Ibn Arabi says, he says, the fact that they made God three means that it has a rooting in monotheism. It has a rooting in the oneness of God. What he doesn't, what he doesn't believe is actually valid. 
is a sense of duality. A sense of duality that divides the world between absolute light and absolute darkness. Not that by itself is wrong, but without this, this third element that mediates, right? Mm. That you have to have that third element to which both of these elements sort of collapse and return after the climactic battle and the clash happens between, between light and darkness. Because also the importance of this third space is that's actually where the two sides witness one another. I mean, this is the mirror, right? The mirror mm -hmm. is needed for light to witness itself in darkness and for darkness to witness itself in light. This is the circle of the yin and yang. You can imagine yin and yang on, on opposite side without ever meeting in the circle. So for me, this is really the key to contemporary art and to contemporary... I believe that almost all of contemporary art Awaringly or unawaringly, consciously or subconsciously, is really trying to negotiate this idea of the liminal space, of the clash, of the contention, of the perplexity, of the paradox, of witnessing the sacred in the unfamiliar. Yeah, well, the Christic archetype, which is rooted in Christian theology, refers to the idea that Jesus Christ is the ultimate mediator between the divine and humanity. And in a broader sense, I think artists can be seen as fulfilling a Christic archetype by serving as intermediaries, as you're describing, between the sacred and the secular, and they can bring then spiritual truths into the realm of human understanding through their creative expressions. And contemporary art often embraces the concept of finding the sacred in the mundane. Artists use, for example, everyday objects, experiences, or materials as a foundation for their work. We can think about bricolage and collage as examples of this. And that encourages viewers to reevaluate their perceptions of the ordinary and discover the extraordinary within it. So I think that all of these ideas really support one another within the frame of mysticism and creativity. And then when you get to Ibn Arabi, then the Christic archetype, you know, for him is one of many prophetic archetypes, but specifically the Christic archetype is really the one uh, of, of the artist, as you mentioned, in the sense that um, for Ibn Arabi, Jesus represents a performance Jesus is a performance of how God creates. In other words, there is a miraculousness in the way in which every human being is created. But that miraculousness is hidden. In other words, we're all born from the wombs of our mothers after that miraculousness had already taken place in an unseen realm. But that miraculousness manifested physically in the case of Jesus, in the mm -hmm. Annunciation, in the uh, casting of the divine breath from the Holy Spirit into Mary. That process, in a sense, takes place in every human being, but it's hidden. And then all mm -hmm. of a sudden, it's manifested. So then for Ibn Arabi, he says, look, just as the Holy Spirit cast the breath of God onto Mary, Jesus reenacted 
this 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 moment of birth, this moment of conception, he was reperforming it, reenacting it as a miracle by resurrecting the dead. And he actually, and this is where the form is so important to Ibn Arabi. He says the reason why Jesus was able to do this miracle in a human form is because the Holy Spirit appeared in a human form when he cast the breath of God to Mary. Had the Holy Spirit appeared in an angelic form, then Jesus would have to change to that form whenever he performed a miracle through breath. So this is, for me, where Ibn Arabi really says the form is important. The physical mm -hmm. form dictates, and this is what Jesus teaches us. So teach, Jesus teaches us that there is a sanctity a sacredness, despite, and even in Islam, it's the same way, despite the emphasis on the kingdom of heaven, there is a very deep emphasis on the power of the physical form because mm -hmm. it shapes and guides how the grace is channeled. And I think this is where the this idea of the sacred within the mundane comes in because ultimately what the artist is doing is they're trying to decipher the, the Christic archetype in all the things that they're dealing with. How can this thing channel God? How can this thing channel God? And even though they might be atheists, as we've mentioned, it's again, the, the artist who is consciously Christic, be yeah. they Muslim, Christian, or Jew, it doesn't matter, but that they're consciously Christic, that they come and they do this act of translation of enunciating a divine grace upon this work for their own sake mm -hmm. and saying, you know, God, I witness. I mean, this is another way to describe it. I think that, that this, the, the, the religious artist is a witness, right? Mm -hmm. For, for witnessing with God's eyes that this work is this. Now for Ibn Arabi, it's also of benefit to the artist because ultimately what we're doing is we're searching for Gnosis. So we need, contemporary art to discover God in the here and now. Well, also contemporary art is what speaks to us about our own present condition. And that, because it radiates out into the political, cultural, and economic realities in which we live and interact, it, it brings the spiritual into the everyday in terms of our concerns and our ethical choices. But I think that this, I, I'd like to stay with this idea of form and, and go a little bit closer to it, be a little bit more specific. We often think of religion and art in the form of traditional religious painting and sculpture, art that depicts religious themes. And in fact, religious art was the mainstream and often the most prominent form of artistic expression before the modern era. This was, of course, because the dominant institutions and patrons were religious in nature across uh, faith traditions. It's true for both Christian and Islamic art. But in a secular world where societal values have changed, how do you think popular art forms like movies and TV engage with theology in ways that meet the needs of people like traditional religious art did in the past. 
That's a beautiful question. And that's really, again, the major challenge for, I think, artists across the spectrum and faith traditions. The issue is, is that there is a concept in Islamic mysticism and Sufism that the name can imprison the named as opposed to liberating the named. And one during an interview about one of my recent books, the interviewer asked me a beautiful question. She is a Muslim artist. She said, you know, when I think about Islamic art, when I think about calligraphy or odes or things like that, it's very idealistic. It's very, it's very noble. It's very idealistic, but we don't live in a perfect world. And I oftentimes find it hard for this art to relate to the world we live in. And I think that the challenge is to approach for the religious artist, to approach contemporary art with the humility and the humbleness of seeking grace to witness God in the unfamiliar. It's only mundane because it's unfamiliar. Because the mundane is a term that we have designated that is different than the sacred, than the special, than the exceptional. Uh, when in reality, it is all exceptional. And the, you know, the 12th century Muslim uh, thinker, Ghazali, you know, he said that the only reason, he says, a miracle is just breaking of the habit. He says, there is nothing less miraculous about the sun rising from the east than if it were to rise from the west, except for the fact that we're used to the sun rising from the east. But there is nothing less miraculous about the sun rising and daytime and nighttime, except for the fact that we've become accustomed to it. Mm -hmm. And the mundane is just that which we have become accustomed to. But the fact that, for example, a cup of coffee in a, in a busy coffee shop, in, in, a, in a hustle and bustle of downtown Manhattan, um, there is nothing unmiraculous there is nothing unmiraculous about how that cup of coffee, the smell of a cup of coffee in that place, not in a church, not in a mosque, not in a synagogue, how that can conjure memories, how that can facilitate, how that can be a constant across space, how artifacts of the physical world that we live in, a visit to the museum can actually activate uh, be like a time portal. And I think the, 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 the thing here is this idea of the museum, right? So the museum as a modern building, uh, it was invented as a place where people, citizens of nation states can go to negotiate their identity. And the first, as Louis Ruprecht mentions in, in an article, that the first museum was actually the Parthenon on Mount Olympus after Greece was designated as a nation state they wanted a place for Greeks, whatever that means at the time, to be able to go and negotiate their identity. So you go to the Parthenon, and this is what it means to be Greek. And, you know, the museum, uh, I went to a museum once in 2010, the Chicago Art Institute, and there was a, a biography. They had a temporary exhibit on Matisse, and there was a conversation between Matisse and one of his students. And... Matisse tells his student, he said, remember that Cezanne said, every beginning artist needs to go and find their teacher, need to go visit the Louvre, the, 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 the museum, and needs to find their teacher in the paintings. 
And then they need to spend their lives dedicating themselves to that one teacher, bringing their vision to life. Then I realized that the museum is actually a mausoleum. It's a mausoleum. Because what you're doing is you're, you're visiting a shrine complex of artwork. And it's mentioned that when Leonardo da Vinci was dying, he was hugging the Mona Lisa. And then after he died, when the guards wanted to take the picture out of, out of, his, uh, out of his embrace, the king said, leave it. I, I want to wait until his spirit goes into the painting. So every artwork, every contemporary artwork, you know, as Norman Mailer said, every book I have written has killed me a little bit more. And so the, the, the artwork, the contemporary novel, the contemporary music album, the contemporary uh, film uh, uh, devours the artist a little bit in a little bit. And it becomes this mm -hmm. standing expression of emotions. I think the challenge for the religious, and this is, this is a challenge that the Muslim community faces, is of trying to divorce tradition and spirituality from human emotion. And when tradition, when faith and religion becomes emotionless, it becomes catastrophic. So it's, would you say that's one of the common challenges that artists from both Islamic and Christian backgrounds encounter? when trying to express their spirituality through art? Because I'm wondering how they might navigate those kinds of challenges and wondering what you could tell us about Sufi aesthetics and what they might offer contemporary artists that are not Muslim in terms of engagement with the spiritual dimension. What might we be able to learn about how to bring the spiritual into our creative expression? Yes. I think, well, what, what I challenge Muslim artists to do is to translate their faith or their craft into five basic human emotions. And it cannot they cannot use the term submission because that's usually what we translate Islam as, as submission or peace. I'm looking for things like memory. I'm looking for things like imagination. I think for me, when you ask me what can Sufism give the contemporary artist across faith traditions, you know, I, I'm specifically speaking through the lens of Ibn Arabi and this idea of that uh, remembrance. Remembrance has to be personal. It has to be, it has to deal with the ugly. Divine grace has to deal with the ugliness of, of human emotion. And I think the key also is this idea of gratitude, of approaching the creative process with a sense of gratitude such that some days the creative inspiration will be there. And on the days that the creative inspiration is there, gratitude says that you have a responsibility to engage with that divine visitor, the divine muse. It's actually an ethical divine responsibility to engage with your, your, your divine visitor. But then the question becomes, then what to do on the days when there is what we call a creative block or when the creative inspiration is not there? And it is on mm -hmm. those days, I believe, that gratitude says you work to show gratitude for when the inspiration came and with the conviction that it will come again and with the acknowledgement 
that you are not worshiping the divine visitor, you're worshiping the divine. So what the mystical traditions, if I'm hearing you right, are might advise the creative individual is to adopt a certain attitude, which yes. then will manifest in what they produce. And I think the other thing is that I think a religious artist, and I would love to see work emanating through this from Christianity, of really engaging with the verses of the Bible, Old and New Testament, as this idea of, of, of ayah, of sign, that is not only a verse, but also a sign within themselves. And I would love to see a, 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 a dynamic living translation, creative translation of taking a verse from the Bible and witnessing it in the most mundane of contemporary art. You know, there was a beautiful translation project called the American Quran, where a non-Muslim took every page of the Quran in English and rendered it in a drawing from contemporary American life. And mm -hmm. I had the most incredible spiritual experiences. I mean, this was my, this was exactly what creativity is for me to witness God in the mundane, to witness God in the unfamiliar. I think that gratitude, uh, the idea of translation, uh, verse and sign, also the idea of liminality. I think the idea of imagination and thinking about how the 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 form of Christ, how the idea of the relationship in the Trinity, how that what what does that actually mean for the artist? Hmm. And 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 I would challenge Christian artists to continue ascending in depths of understanding beyond things like well the holy spirit is guiding my work yes but let's let's go let's go a little bit deeper what is the instrument in this what is this relationship or, yeah or there's of course the common problem of just getting stuck on iconography that yes relates to religious tradition and this goes for me to this issue of form that we mm -hmm. touched on earlier. I think that's just endlessly fascinating. I'm wondering what are the benefits as well as the limitations in your mind of forming images of God? What can Christians learn from the Sufi visual tradition in, in that respect? In the apophatic view of God, also known as negative theology or via negativa, we emphasize the ineffability and unknowability of the divine. It's a prominent aspect of mystical and contemplative traditions in various religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. You can also find it in Neoplatonism, and it asserts that the true nature of God transcends human understanding and language. It emphasizes what God is not. It embraces paradox and tension, qualities of strong contemporary art, and ultimately encourages a humble and reverent approach to, to the divine, recognizing that God's true essence is ultimately beyond our capacity to fully comprehend or articulate. So the form is a way of expressing ideas, concepts, experiences 
but it can also become a trap. It can become a fetish. There are pros and cons of images of God. What are your thoughts on that? That's an excellent question. And one of the uh, epiphanies that Ibn Arabi gave me is that just as form might limit God, so can absolution of form. Because in both instances, there is a limitation put upon God, that either God is limited by one particular form, or that when you say, as soon as you say God cannot, you've limited him. You say God cannot be put in form. But there's a difference between cannot and is not. Right, exactly. A huge difference, right? Because when you say is not, you're actually saying he can be, he can, he, he can be, he can permeate all forms. I mean, th- th- this is, this is the key here. And I think what Ibn Arabi wants us to do is to not be satisfied with lingering in a particular stasis of either form or formlessness hmm. and to appreciate the journey of perplexity of movement again reality is perplexity perplexity is anxiety and movement i think i think for him it's this idea of you know how can a form how can god be once in all forms permeating all forms and yet transcend all of that at the same time that tension and that anxiety is where all answers lie and now for him you know, the, the question of iconoclasm, which is usually associated with Islam, that is being a very iconoclastic tradition that forbids uh, any portrayals of God, even the prophet. For him, he says, well, but we are actually commanded to imagine God in prayer. As, as the prophet himself said, worship God as though you see him. And so it becomes this imperative for Ibn Arabi that the physical form, if you're only it, 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 the character, the uh, what the physical form does is it imprisons the imagination, just as the name can imprison the named. Now, the challenge becomes of how to constantly transcend the physical form. If you have a physical form of God, either in a painting or a statue, but you know, to be to be honest. And this is what Ibn Arabi, I mean, this is the only main criticism that Ibn Arabi has of the Trinity is why restrict God to only three? It's the entire gamut of the universe that's actually, you know, the manifestation of God. Well, the Trinity is a theology. So any kind of theology is, in a sense, a conceptualization. So just like form, right, the idea helps us grasp something that ultimately is ungraspable. I mean, I'm thinking about, yeah, exactly. So for example, how are images of God in Christianity or images of Jesus more rightly in Christianity? How are those beneficial? Why do you need images? Well, we need images to understand the relationship of love because our experience of love in the everyday or the mundane is with other people. So to worship 
you know, the idea of energy, <laughs> for right. example, right. you know, it doesn't work for human beings because right. we need relationship. And right. so the, the form of, of God in Jesus and then represented, say, in a, um, a painting of Jesus is a way of remembering and uh, being consoled by perhaps um, a relational yes. uh, energy that we can we understand through our experience as human beings and i think and, and i think so this is the 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 encouragement that ibn arabi is bringing to the and, and sufism would bring to that perception is how can you remain the challenge of remaining true to the intimacy that is coming through the painting through form and yet at the same time trying to glimpse the 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 transcendence that permeates from that form into many other forms it, so it, it, it in a sense i think the the most creative and meaningful guidance of of sorts that ibn arabi can give to this christian appreciation of the form is the perplexity, the inherent perplexity and the anxiety that resides even in human love. Because, you know, this idea of human love, it's not really, it's, it's, it's never achievable. There is always a distance. The, the, the Ibn Arabi describes love as the longing of the, of the lover to union with the beloved. But if that union were to occur in some type of physical intimacy then the 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 object of love changes from the longing for the union to happen to the longing for the union to continue indefinitely he says the object of love is never achieved and actually we long for no one but ourselves now there is that that tension there that 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 need for constant movement that i think uh what ibn arabi is trying to tell muslims is don't disparage the form and don't disparage, as you mentioned, the need for intimacy through the form. But then on the other hand, what he's telling those who are drawn to forms, uh, and he actually says the reason why the Christian community is so drawn to forms, is so drawn to paintings uh, of Jesus and Mary is precisely because of the way that the conception happened is because the Holy Spirit appeared in a human form and that became an imprint in the consciousness of Mary that passed on to Jesus and from Jesus passed to the apostles and the entire Christian community. But then the challenge becomes, how can you use the form to remain in that liminal interstice of, of anxiety of recognizing that this form, the form itself is trying to liberate me from form, and yet well, it's again, going, yeah, but I, I think that goes back to what I said at the beginning of our conversation that if we think about the form as a portal, it's yes. not the thing to be seized and and then worshipped. I mean, right. that's the that's idolatry, right? In, right? in Christian language, that's to be avoided. That's idolatrous. So we pass through the form, we're attracted to the form through its beauty, through certain aesthetic qualities, 
and then we move outwards into something larger so we can recognize and appreciate the form almost as a signpost for the divine yes. but we don't stay with it we we leave it behind when it's no longer necessary so david brown in his book uh, he wrote a trilogy of books remarkable books god and mystery of words and god and mysticism of body and one of the things he says is that you know just as metaphor in language is important to decipher meaning that the sacredness of the meaning overflows onto the calligraphy and the word and the metaphor that is meant to convey it because you know this is a huge converse, this is a huge concept also in within sufism in the argument against uh, certain extreme trends within islam that tend to disparage sufism and the reverence to the prophet so the argument is that the sacredness of the prophetic body is from the sacredness of the quran that it, that he carried and so the the what david brown is saying is that the sacredness of the form is from the sacredness of the message or the the meaning that the form is meant to convey so what Ibn Arabi is saying, I think, is that you want to take one foot beyond the form and keep one foot with the form. And I think this is where the perplexity comes in. Paradox. E exactly. Even after you have recognized, you have felt this sort of way in which the intimacy of the form has led you to the beyond it's as a portal you still recognize that, hey, the fact that this was even chosen as a portal means that God is not only beyond, he is here, there and here at the same time. And this is mm -hmm. probably if I had one way of describing Ibn Arabi's vision in one way is that it's all about the perplexity of the universe being God and not God. And, it, and it's a principle that carries over to everything. The form is 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 him, not him, and the 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 rule the 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 trick of the in this case the religious artist is to always make sure that they're in that liminal space uh, where they they can witness uh, 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 they can keep moving they can keep witnessing this the both sides the transcendence and the immanence. Mm -hmm producing this well of knowledge, this well of gnosis of God. Yeah, I think it's, it's critical to recognize uh, for all of us that there are different levels of reality that exist simultaneously and interpenetrate one another so that there's relative truth, there's absolute truth, there's, there, there are a variety of experiences that can be interpreted epistemologically, ontologically, metaphorically, and we negotiate different levels of reality continuously and to accept and be open to the fact that these are all equally real is very healthy for us as human beings because it allows us to acknowledge the transcendent nature of experience and also not disparage what is typically called the profane. You know, when we when we set up that du duality of of sacred and profane, 
that speaks to the larger problem of dualistic thinking, which makes us feel like we have to choose one thing or another. Either if this is true, then this is false. That ability to hold multiple realities in one's experience and see them as equally real, equally worthy of our uh, appreciation and to understand that that that's the larger picture of the sacred is really critical to personal growth. And uh, it sounds like Ibn Arabi is a wonderful guide into that way of rethinking who we are. But I also wanted to think about our experience with images in terms of the everyday and this idea of transporting us beyond ourselves through the images of our contemporary world. Because sometimes a TV show can have a more profound impact on us than a sermon. How do you see modern media influencing spirituality and how can it encourage people to explore their faith rather than fixating on dogma or being overly concerned with getting things right? Yeah, and I think that in lieu of everything we have spoken about, the way I, I, I like to explain it is that the problem that many coming from within a religious tradition have with contemporary art is that they're looking at, at it with the eye of transcendence, whereas contemporary art is crying out for imminence. So when I, for example, hmm. if I were to look at Virginia Woolf as a precursor to eminence, because what she's talking about is this sort of sacredness that is inherent in the cotton fields, in the, in the, in the, it's such a radical eminence that it actually obliterates any sense of transcendence. So she says there is no Shakespeare, there is just the sonnets. Uh, there is, and there, and there is definitely no God, right? But what she's talking about really is that. God is fully here and now. And I think that understanding the mm. reasons for that, why is contemporary art reacting against transcendence is because we have a problem as religious communities being relevant. We have a problem with being relevant and revenant. I mean, at least, you know, in the, in the case of the Muslim community, I mean, in the, you know, and I, I tell this to Muslims all the time, at least the Christian churches still have gospel music. We don't have music, and this this is a huge this is a huge problem, because because if you understand what is the contemporary dilemma, you'll actually realize that they want the experience, they want the taste in the here and now, whereas dogma sets the precedence for a classification, a categorization, a distancing of God that, that looks down upon the physical world as being unworthy, as being unworthy of, of achieving the grace of God. But, but it also requires, doesn't that transcendent view also lean very heavily on belief, which is also problematic? Well, maybe, but I think, you know, because one has to be convinced to believe, right? Uh, you know, uh, one could argue, well, how do I know that this is, you know, your ideas right. about God 
are real. Prove that to me. Whereas if we talk about the imminence of the divine in the things of the world, then we can agree with that person who would doubt the belief system, hey, there's something really moving in this work of art, right? This, this work of art is taking us somewhere. It, it's, it's deepening our understanding of some aspect of the world or experience. I think, though, that even the most radical of the contemporary artists functions according to a system of beliefs. God doesn't, is not mentioned there. But if you decipher, if you, if you start taking these layers of translations, of peeling the layers, what you find mm-hmm. is these building blocks from which, uh, for example, there is some sense of gratitude, even if it is egotistical, egotistically inclined towards the self. I'm grateful for my own self. Gratitude is functioning there. And I think what mysticism mm-hmm. tells us is like, well, okay, there is a sacredness of the of the self there. Now, the purpose is not to simply blindly legitimize everything that contemporary art does. For the religious artist, for me, the purpose is really to find God in the unfamiliar. I mean, for me personally. But then, and this is, I think, another challenge for the religious artist is how can I take Prince, like you asked me, for example, what can... Sufism, how can it help Christian artists? And I found myself having to translate. I have to translate what Mm -hmm. Sufism in its very specific context can actually give to Christian artists in their own specific context. I think as religious artists, we also find ourselves in the dilemma of translating spiritual principles from the summit of our metaphysics for contemporary artists in a language that they understand. But in order for us to be able to do that, in order for us to be able to do that, we first have to approach contemporary art with the humbleness and the humility that God is there. And he's waiting to communicate to us in a form that we don't know. And there is, you know, there is a beautiful story about a preacher who asked his father for permission to go and call to God. And he said, first go to the marketplace and find somebody who is worse than you, uh, and then and then come and tell me about it. So he went and he found a Muslim who's drinking liquor, and he said, "Well, this Muslim is, is 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 disobeying God, so I must be better than him." And then he thought, "Well, he could repent to God and become a saint, and I could die as a sinner, in which case he will be better than me." Then he went and he found a non-Muslim. And he says, well, this person is not Muslim. He's a non-believer, and I'm certainly better than him. And he says, well, but wait a minute. He could also die as a believer and a saint, and I could die as a sinner, in which case he could also be better than me. I can't tell for sure. And then he goes and he finds a carcass of a dog. He says, surely I'm better than this dog. But then he thought, wait a minute. If I disobey God and I go to... On the, on the day of judgment, God is going to punish me, but the animal is not going to be punished. It's going to simply turn to the dust. So I can't even tell if the dog is, if I'm better than the dog. So when he went back to his father and he told him the story, his father said, now you're ready to call to God. And I think that this is the quintessential sort of anecdote to describe the dilemma, the challenge for the for the artist, the religious artist who's coming from a place of dogma, who's coming from a place of, even if we don't like to admit it, we come from a place of ethical superiority, that what we're doing is sanctioned by God, 
or God loves what we're doing and what that person is doing, it's not enough to say uh, that that person might be forgiven or that person in some way he's doing something else in hiding that is actually something that God loves is to say that in where they are right now, in these actions and in these statements that I cannot decipher due to my own weakness, God is there. And, 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 and the more obfuscated the form is, actually the more prominent is the appearance of God. And Ibn Arabi beautifully describes this in his litanies. He says, oh God, you who is hiddenness is nothing but utter manifestation. And he says in, in his supplications also, he says that beauty proclaims God, whereas ugliness calls forth. He is the one who perfected everything he created. So he says beauty is a halt, is a, is a, is a, is a place where the, the journey stops. And ugliness is a veil. It's a veil because you assume that there is somebody other than him. Do you think that this would apply to the way we perceive modern forms of media that, say, communicate spiritual ideas or which speak to us the way contemporary art sometimes does in terms of awakening us to issues or to communities that we're unfamiliar with? Is there... Is there a, a legitimacy there to modern media's role in terms of how you're describing the sacred and the mundane? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, unfortunately, religious communities, we fetter ourselves. We, 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 we put ourselves in the bondage of a particular type of interpretive lens that's very academic. You know, in the academy, for example... I cannot engage Ibn Arabi and Derrida in a fruitful conversation because they lived 800 or 1,000 years apart. But who says mm -hmm. I can't? If you, if you are coming from the lens of divine grace, where it's a singular moment, then I should be able to engage Ibn Arabi with Derrida. And all it takes, it's like, you know, it's, it's remarkable. I hear oftentimes uh, Muslim scholars, even people who are involved in aesthetics, who say, well... Yeah, maybe Adele is singing uh, this song that sounds religious, but that's not what her, what her intention is. Her intention is something else. And my point is, who cares what her intention is? Because you're not approaching it, you're not writing an academic journal about Adele's uh, 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 song. You are creatively thinking as a spiritual being. You are trying to forge. My brother, who's an architect, he beautifully told me, he said, Every building has four dimensions, the three dimensions of space and the story that we create within it. Hmm. Right. Wow, and that's I think, great. right. And I, and I, and I think, and I, I mean, and this, this applies to music because, you know, Goethe said that architecture is music frozen in space. So music is also rhythm, tonality, and then the story, the story of emotion, the story that we, not only the writer, but the listener creates with. So, with every work of art, with every artist that, I mean, when I heard Adele's song, Go Easy On Me, um, her latest song, I found myself in tears because I imagined myself standing in front of God 
on the day of judgment and singing that song go easy on me hmm. i was i was just a <laughs> child i didn't know what i didn't have a chance to choose what i and you know uh -huh. and then i began making connections with leonard cohen's song hallelujah because i imagined uh -huh. that this song that adele sang is the sick secret chord that that david sang and it pleased the lord so it, it hmm. you have we we have lost the ability to create stories to forge stories in our relationship with God. I want to mention this short anecdote. It's, it's not actually, it's actually a true story that a man came in front of the prophet while the prophet was laying down and he didn't address the prophet. He addressed God. And this is what he said. He said, God, I am your servant. This is your prophet and Satan is your enemy. If you forgive your servant, your servant will be saved. Your enemy will be you will be upset and your prophet will be happy. If you do not forgive me, your servant will be destroyed. Your enemy will be happy and your prophet will be upset. You are more generous than to destroy your servant, to make your enemy happy and to make your prophet upset. And he walked away. The prophet smiled and he said, God forgave him because of the beautiful way that he asked. This is the essence, I think. So you mean it, you're talking about the form as opposed to the content there in that example? Yeah. I mean, to have the liberty, the creativity of dealing with God outside of to use the tools that he gave us as not the boundary of what we can mm -hmm. say to him, mm -hmm. but to actually be the tools like a color palette. Well, we want those boundaries. We want the rules because this gives us a sense of certainty, doesn't it? That, okay, well, if I follow these prescribed methods, then that's taken care of, right? I, I, I'm good with God because I followed what was, what was prescribed and I did my best. And now that is, is, Taken care of, I can now relax and go about living in whatever way I want to. The issue, kind of like shutting off, right? Yeah. It's like I'm done. Yeah. The issue is <laughs> from, that. from the Sufi perspective is that divine grace is boundless. And if you ask God for something specific, he will give you that. But if you ask God for God, then... He, he will give you from what he believes is best for you. And as an artist myself, I oftentimes find myself, I find him more present when I think, it's not that I don't do the rules. I still, I still pray five times a day. I, 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 I might do my ritual washing, but I am always thinking mythologically. I'm imagining myself going through a rite of passage, entering a different dimension, entering a different portal. It, 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 and that, that is the type of creativity, I think, that we need in engaging with the contemporary world. Because remember, I mean, we have to understand that the contemporary world, it's been imprinted, engraved in the contemporary human mind that the world is a savage land, that, that we, you know, Weber, Max Weber had tried really hard to disenchant the universe. There is nothing enchanting about this universe. Whereas 
creativity in a mystical sense, Ibn Arabi is specifically that type of person, it's the opposite. It is an enchanting place. There are stories happening. The sun is not simply a chemical reaction of, 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 of degrees of heat and, and light. It is, it is in love and it's enraptured and it's sweating and it's running and it's producing heat. It's running to a destination. So the ability to, and, and this, is, this is actually what I say is that the ability to appreciate contemporary art is a very ancient way of living. And then it sounds oxymoronic to say that because it's not about really what, 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 what is divine about brutalist architecture. That's, I think, that's, I think, the wrong question in a, in a way. What we're really asking is how did the ancient human being at the time before modernity, before the Reformation, before the Industrial Revolution, before the Enlightenment, how did humanity perceive the presence of God in everything? How did they, as Tolkien did, for example, in Lord of the Rings, and he's he's paying homage to that, you know, there is a scene where, you know, the sun rises red. And 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 Legolas, the archer, he says, it's a red sun, blood has been spilled. Now, in the modern context, it doesn't matter what color the sun is, it's just a chemical thing. It's just because there's too many clouds, or you know, it's always reducible to some kind of physical material. Whereas the ancient creative way, it's not about disregarding that, but supercharging it. But it's Over also the, the way you're describing it, it's a way of finding ourselves in it. Yes. Right? And finding ourselves in the created order as opposed to having this subject object split and seeing the God and the created order as separate from us. We're that uh, uh, perceiving ourselves as alienated. Yeah. You are part of the story. And this is why mythology is important. This is why, I mean, going to contemporary art, this is why people will fill movie theaters watching the next Star Wars movie and watching the next uh, DC Universe movie and watching the next Marvel because we, it's for the same reason why we, we you know, the Romans attended the Gladiator Games. It's the same reason why people visited the Parthenon, the ancient Greeks, not because they believed there were multiple gods, but because they wanted to they wanted to see what a superhuman, with human weaknesses, how they could work out a story, how they could challenge their own weaknesses in a, in a triumph. This is the importance of the myth. I mean, this is what Joseph Campbell talks about, right? So the reason why we feel so moved to learn of the struggle between the Jedi and the Sith, the redemption. I remember giving a sermon once at an interfaith center on Star Wars. And I had a man come to me uh, in, in his 60s and he said, you have no idea watching Luke Skywalker redeem his father, Anakin, uh, helped me deal with decades of domestic abuse by my father. So these are real stories. And, and it's true in video games, by the way, as well, because the video games are not empty entertainment anymore. There is actual real stories of coming to age. George Lucas, when he wrote Return of the Jedi, he worked this transformation, this redemption into the script because in the script, 
Darth Vader, the lines of Darth Vader are mentioned with the name Darth Vader until the last line when he says, uh, when Luke tells him after he takes off the mask, he says, I've got to save you. And, 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 and Anakin says, you, you, you already have. That line, it changes. It's no longer Darth Vader. It's Anakin Skywalker. So it's worked into the backstage of the story. This is not action. The, 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 it is, but it's, it's, it's all about this struggle between light and darkness. And how divinity works into that is, again, this, this liminal space and, 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 and what can you absorb of the darkness and how it works. So I think the challenge for the, for the, for the, for the, for the contemporary religious person, who the contemporary religious artist in dealing with contemporary culture is that it's not about focusing there is too much darkness in this work of art or it's not clearly religious, is that we have chosen to bind ourselves with, with, with fetters that are not actually part of the tradition. There is nothing in any tradition that says you cannot witness God in contemporary art. On the contrary, as I mentioned in the Quran, we will show them our signs in the horizons and in their own selves. In the Quran, it says, wherever you turn, therein, the, therein is the countenance of God. The imperative is, on the contrary, to actually witness. But it's, it's from a place of fear. Now, I think also, at least in an Islamic tradition, the problem we have is that over the past five to six centuries, uh, Islamic metaphysics, Allah ibn Arabi, has not been engaged with meaningfully with things like Marxism, communism, deconstruction, uh, postmodernism. We don't have meaningful engagements. And this is why the approach is always from a place of one fear, but also um, a place that you probably you, you, you hinted towards this idea of retreat into a tradition against the modern world that oh you know islamic art is holy but hip-hop no way hip-hop is 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 satanic you know an ode a religious ode that is sacred but uh you know this modern art there is nothing sacred in it and i wonder you can't live this way you can't possibly live in the world because you're approaching it from a place of arrogance you're not approaching it from a place of God, show me your grace. You're actually saying, God, you have created this. You have allowed this to happen with no wisdom. And, and this is a theological problem. This is a theological yeah. problem that I think the contemporary religious subject has to deal with. Yeah, it does create a lot of other problems too. The restrictive mind sets up contradictions that can't be resolved without a regressive attitude, which is destructive ultimately, and is the opposite of, I think, what we're achieving here in our conversation. I mean, this has been great. And Ali, thank you for your insightful contribution to our discussion. Absolutely. The pleasure is I think it's added. Yeah, I think it's added significant value to fostering interfaith dialogue. And we should remember the importance of having more constructive conversations like this in today's divisive world where 
genuine dialogue is commonly overshadowed by the loudest voices. It's actually in the quiet, in the space in between that I often find the most profound meaning. And I greatly appreciate your openness in joining me to explore the wisdom each of our traditions offer. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It's been it's been a pleasure. And I think that, you know, I, I always thought I'm always of the opinion that true interfaith conversations need to happen at the levels of the summits, um, because that's where the siren song is in the same language across faith traditions and across even crafts. This is the place where, you know, we could have had a third guest that's an atheist artist and he could have very well engaged in what we're talking about because we're talking about themes like imagination, perplexity. So I hope that yeah. uh, this is the doorway to further conversations with you, with other people, and that uh, more people from different traditions come to your wonderful podcast and discuss this uh, this topic. Thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to uh, your future work on similar issues. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening to Visually Sacred. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from me, Arthur Agajanian, please visit my website at imageandfaith.com. You can also join my Facebook group, Contemplatives and Conversation, and follow me on Twitter at Art Agajanian. I hope you'll tune in for the next episode of Visually Sacred. Thanks for joining us.